Hello, and welcome to the BNB podcast. I'm Stephanie Petrella, the editor in chief of BNB Russia, and I'm excited today to introduce an interview between Katrina Keegan, a graduate student at Harvard, and Vladimir Karamorza, a well known human rights activist in Russia. Following Alexei Navalny's poisoning in Siberia this summer, Katrina talked with Vladimir about his experience being poisoned in Moscow in 2015 and 2017. During their discussion, Vladimir Karamorza talks about how his political activities put him in the Kremlin sites, why the Kremlin keeps poisoning its opponents, how he's fought with the U.S. Department of Justice for answers in this poisoning, and what the future holds for Russia. I hope you enjoy. So to start off, I was wondering if you could just tell the story of what it was like when you were poisoned in 2015 and 2017. Where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing at the time? When did you first start to notice the effects? Well, both times uh, I was at home in Moscow. Uh, The first time it was in the middle of the day, so I was at a work meeting with uh, a few colleagues. And the second time uh, I was staying overnight at my wife's parents' apartment. Uh, And I was really fortunate both times to have been with someone because the symptoms begin so quickly. You're incapacitated so quickly that's it's it's you know if I were alone I would not be sitting here and speaking with you now. Uh, mm-hmm. But both times I was with somebody and the first symptom uh, was difficulty breathing and I have to tell you it's very scary not to be able to breathe when you're trying to you know make that movement to take in the air and you just seem to be physically unable to do this and then. Mm-hmm. And then I started sweating and vomiting and then and, and very quickly lost consciousness both times. So um, don't remember much from that first few minutes, except that it was very painful to have to go through this and frightening and just literally feeling life going out of your body. And then I spent weeks in hospital both times, both times in a coma, both times with a multiple organ failure and life support machines. And both times doctors told my wife that I had about a 5% chance to survive. Mm-hmm. So no words can express how grateful I feel to be able to even sit here and speak with you now. The official Mm -hmm. diagnosis uh, given to me at the Moscow hospital was toxic effect by an unidentified substance, which, you know, translated from medical jargon into plain human language means poisoning, and they don't know with what. Um, I have Mm -hmm. absolutely no doubt that this was retribution for my political activities in the Russian opposition. Above all, I think my long-term involvement an international campaign for accountability for human rights abuses in the form of the Magnitsky legislation, which uh, enacts targeted sanctions in the form of visa bans and asset freezes against human rights abusers. And Putin's regime and other authoritarian regimes around the world, there are now six countries in the world that have such legislation. And uh, I've been honored to participate in all of these processes and continue this work elsewhere. I think that was the main reason for the poisonings. There's also no doubt from the handwriting, as it were, mm-hmm. that this was uh, done by people can at least connected to the Russian security services. I mean, this has been their signature method going back decades, back to the Soviet times, but especially proliferating since Vladimir Putin came to power. I mean, there's a growing list of political opponents, independent journalists, anti-corruption campaigners, defectors, and so on, who have been subjected to these poisoning attacks. I think there are two main reasons why the Kremlin likes this method so much. The first is the sadistic aspect. As I already mentioned, it's, it's excruciatingly painful to have to go through this. And then if mm-hmm. you're fortunate enough to survive, as, as I was, and as Alexei Navalny thankfully was as well, it then takes months and months and a lot of effort to go back to some sort of normal. I mean, I had to learn to walk again after the first mm-hmm. because once you're in a coma for such a sustained period of time, your body just basically loses all its strength. Uh, but the second reason I think the Kremlin and its security services like this method so much is... Uh, 
because they think it gives them plausible deniability. Because of course, every time something like this happens, every time another Kremlin opponent is poisoned, you know, Kremlin spokespeople come out and shrug their shoulders and say, you know, why are you blaming us? Nobody knows what happened. Maybe they ate something wrong or they took the wrong medicine or they, or they drank too much. This, this is what they say every single time. I mean, every time there is a political poisoning, they throw in hundreds of alternative quote unquote explanations to try to muddy the water. And, you know, if there's mm -hmm. a thousand versions there is not a single one. That's their thinking. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when Yuri Shekhachikhin, a Russian opposition lawmaker and investigative journalist, was poisoned and died in 2003, the authorities announced that he had Lyle syndrome, an extremely rare allergic reaction that affects mm -hmm. about one person in a million. When Anna Politkovska was poisoned, this was two years before she was killed, she was poisoned on her way to covering the Beslan terrorist siege. Mm -hmm. uh, it was announced that she had a viral infection. When Viktor Yushchenko, the Ukrainian presidential candidate, was poisoned uh, in, in the midst of the 2004 election campaign. And you, you can still see the effects of the poisoning on his face to this day. Thankfully, he survived. Uh, Kremlin state television said that he uh, ate bad sushi. Every time they come up with something. In my case, they right. said that I took some wrong medicine or the medicines interacted with each other or that I drank too much alcohol. The same mm -hmm. with Alexei Navalny now, it's either alcohol or problems with digestive system or low blood sugar, you know, whatever, whatever nonsense that they keep coming out with. And so um, partly to try to pierce through that fake plausible deniability, um, I tried to get some answers from the United States Justice Department, the FBI, after my second right. poisoning mm -hmm. in 2017. So the second time was in February of 2017. And after it happened, uh, my wife managed to obtain some blood and urine samples and take them to the FBI toxicology lab for testing. It's supposed to be one of the strongest toxicology labs in the world. Mm -hmm. And they tested the samples, maybe got some results, uh, and then they classified them. Uh, they refused to give them to me. They refused to give them to members of Congress who had requested them, including the late Senator John McCain. Uh, they refused to give them to, to media organizations to try to get them through the Freedom of Information Act. And so earlier this year, I had no choice uh, but to go to court against the United States government uh, in Washington, D.C. through my American lawyers. I'm fortunate and deeply grateful to, uh, to have one of the best lawyers representing me on this case, Stephen Rademacher, former Assistant Secretary of State in the Bush administration, who's taken on this case completely pro bono as public service, who's helping me lead this lawsuit. Um, and so since in the seven months since the, the lawsuit began, of course, my goal is to get out the lab test results for my own blood test, sounds, abs mm -hmm. sounds absurd, but it took a lawsuit <laughs> to, to get it out. Right. Uh, and so um, initially the, the final deadline to hand over all the documents was set at October the 15th. Uh, but just a few days ago in September, um, the Department of Justice lawyers informed my lawyers that they had located an additional 1100 pages of documents relating to the lab test results uh, which it's is what I wanted in the first place, which is what we asked them to prioritize. You know, We didn't need any of these other bureaucratic documents and internal correspondence. Uh, what we needed above all were the lab test results. And, uh, and, and we told them all the way that this is the priority and they seem to have found it only in the last moment. And so now they're requesting an extension until November 16th, so over a month from the original deadline. We did get the first batch of documents already, about 240 pages out of the uh, 1500 uh, total uh, pages mm -hmm. of documents on my case. There are a couple of interesting things even in the first batch. For example, we now know for certain that my case was discussed in the January 2018 meet meeting between the heads of the US and the Russian secret services in Washington. When the three Russian service chiefs, the FSB, the SVR and the GRU came to Washington to meet their American counterparts. We know from the documents already released that the case was discussed. There's also mention of two labs 
that were involved in the testing. One is the FBI's own toxicology lab in Quantico, Virginia. And the other one is the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California that specializes, among other things, in chemical weapons. But we have no blood test results of any kind in the initial batch. And so we will now be waiting for this extended deadline, uh, which is now in November, to get the remainder of the documents, which is actually the most important part of it, which is what I wanted to get all along in the first place. Of course. Yeah, that all came out very recently. Um, I know that some documents, as you mentioned in your email, were released to um, Radio Liberty. Um, I was wondering, going, going back to your initial poisoning, um, you, you've said that you were very lucky to be treated by excellent doctors in Russia. And of course, you know, you only had a 5% chance of survival and yet you're here today. Uh, whereas Navalny and his family seem to make a, a different choice, I suppose, or maybe the circumstances were different where he went to Germany to be treated. Um, were you ever worried about um, the Russian doctors that you were, um, that you were being treated by? Well, first of all, I couldn't have been worried about anything because I was in a coma. I had no idea what was happening. Your family, but, uh, I guess, then, but, yeah. But my wife initially wanted to get me transported out of Russia. The first reaction, I think, would be normal uh, in this case until uh, she saw and realized that I'm in very good hands and I'm fortunate to have been saved both times by the same doctor. His name is Dr. Denise Protsenko. Uh, mm -hmm. He's an intensive care specialist in Moscow. He was the one who gave me the diagnosis of a toxic effect of unidentified substance, and he was the one who saved my life twice. So it doesn't depend on the country. It depends on the individual doctors, of course. And when Alexei Navalny was poisoned, when that information first came about, and I got all these calls from, you know, from international media. And one of the first questions they asked was, do you think he should be transported out of Russia for treatment? And my response was, this is a question that only his wife can answer. It would be inappropriate for me to comment because every case is separate. Every case is individual. In my case, both times my life was saved by a Russian doctor in Russia. This mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily happen for everyone. So every case is individual. Of course, don't forget also that I was in Moscow. Both times I was poisoned. Alexei was in Siberia. There's a big difference in mm -hmm. Russia uh, in the quality of healthcare between the large cities, especially the capital city uh, and the provinces. So that could have, could have been a factor too. But above all, what really mattered in Alexei Navalny's case was the fact that his family, his wife, uh, wanted to uh, have him transported out of Russia for treatment. So in this case, for Alexei Navalny, this is what should have been done and what was done in the end. Um, you were just talking about the importance of family and making these decisions and how deeply personal this is. I was wondering what, if any, personal life changes did you have to make um, after you were poisoned? And do you think Navalny might have to make some of those same choices? Like, did you have to spend more time in America afterwards? Or were you able to spend just as much time as you were before in Russia? So my only and real precaution is that my family is outside of Russia. My wife and children are in the U.S. That's, that's the only real precaution we can take because, you know, mm -hmm. I can't not eat, not drink, not touch doorknobs, you know, whatever methods of transmitting these poisons these people have. Uh, I guess I could give up and run, but I'm certainly not going to do that. Neither will Alexei Navalny, neither will our other colleagues. You know, I, I got a lot of calls from journalists on the day that Alexei announced uh, after he came out of a coma in, in Germany he announced that he will be going back to Russia as soon as he can. And I got all these calls from journalists saying, how would you comment on this news? And, and I say, well, what's news? I'm surprised this, this is even a news story because of course it was obvious all the time from the very beginning that as soon as he's able to, he will go back to Russia. Just as I returned back home to Russia, both times after the poisoning, as, as soon as I was able to physically walk again, because it would just be too much of a gift to the Kremlin and to the Putin mm -hmm. regime if those of us who are in the opposition would just give up and run. 
you know, we care about our country. We care about our country's future. We think Russia deserves better than being ruled in a 21st century by a corrupt authoritarian regime. And there are millions of people uh, in Russia who thinks that our country deserves a better future. And for their sake, we have to continue our work. We're not gonna give the Kremlin that gift of leaving. So uh, the only real precaution that can be taken, and I know quite a few colleagues who have done the same thing, is to have, to have one's loved ones, you know, the, the, the close family uh, outside of the country for, for very obvious safety reasons. So that, that's what I have done as well. Right. Of course, you've been very brave going back to Russia, continuing your work, uh, as you say, Navani will as well. Um, I was wondering, do you think that you're the exception or the rule there? Are other, especially local level opposition figures, are they um, all going to be able to make the same choice? Or do you think that the being scared of legitimate threats to their life might prevent them from um, engaging in activism? Well, every one of the opposition leaders and opposition activists who continue their work in Russia today have already made that choice. And their choice is to stay and fight because, you know, dictatorships don't defeat themselves. Autocracies don't fall on their own. If everybody only thought about their own personal safety, then nothing would ever move forward in history. It's as simple as that. So sometimes, sometimes we have to prioritize other things. But yes, we all know the risks involved. We all know the dangers involved. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's courage, as you put it, or stubbornness, as, as I always say. It's more stubborn yeah. than courageous. But, but that certainly, I think, is a job requirement in what we do, uh, being in opposition in Russia. No question about it. Mm -hmm. Continuing on the topic of safety, you wrote in your Washington Post op-ed that it's easier to commit a crime in silence than in the spotlight. Uh, but Navalny and um, others, of course, your good friend Nimtsov, were very much in the spotlight. You yourself in the spotlight. Um, and yet these attacks still do occur. I wonder if that changes how you think about safety, like does becoming prominent help protect you or does it do the reverse? Does it make you uh, much more vulnerable? No, being prominent does not protect. And we know that for a fact, you know, in February of 2015, Boris Nemtsov, who was a former deputy prime minister of Russia, who was the most prominent, the most effective, the most powerful political opponent of Vladimir Putin was literally gunned down in front of the Kremlin walls. Mm -hmm. And in the ensuing five and a half years, the Russian state at the highest level continued and continues to shield and protect the organizers of that murder. So no, being prominent does not protect anyone, anybody. What I meant when I said that it's, it's uh, more difficult to commit a crime in the spotlight, I meant paying attention to the situation. So I know this definitely saved me when I was lying in a coma in Moscow and Senator John McCain went on the Senate floor in Washington, D.C. with my picture and highlighted what had just happened and, and highlighted mm -hmm. the situation, spoke about the situation. And when there was media attention to the situation, well, this frankly made it more difficult for people who may have wanted to finish me off to do it. And it was exactly the same with Alexei Navalny when he was in a coma initially in Omsk. Uh, and, 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 the, and, and the main issue was to try to get him out as his family wanted to go back to our, to our previous conversation. So that's what I meant when I said, uh, when I spoke about the importance of spotlight, that in situations like this, it is important to pay attention. And this goes for a lot of issues, by the way. It doesn't just go for physical attacks. This goes, for example, uh, for the issue of political prisoners. We have more than 300 political prisoners in Russia, as recognized by the Memorial Human Rights Center under the very strict criteria established by the Council of Europe. Resolution 1900 of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe adopted in 2012, establishes some very rigorous criteria of who can be identified as a political prisoner. Uh, so that's, that's a very conservative estimate if you only count people who fall under those criteria. But even under that conservative estimate, we have more than 300 
political prisoners in our country today, in a European country in the 21st century. And this is not normal. And it's important to talk about them, to raise their cases, including individually, including by saying out their names, showing their portraits. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so this is, this is what I mean when I say that spotlight is important because whatever the Kremlin, you know, whatever posture they take, they really do care about public opinion. And we know, for example, of several political prisoners, uh, most recently Oleg Sentsov, the Crimean filmmaker who had been imprisoned by mm -hmm. Putin's regime in Russia, who were released uh, in a very large part thanks to the international spotlight and international pressure. So it's very important not to turn the other way and continue to pay attention to what is happening in Russia and in other authoritarian regimes around the world. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of your work is devoted um, to continuing to shine the spotlight on the Nemtsov case. Um, again, a very close friend of yours and associate and colleague uh, before he was killed. Uh, this attack on Navalny, I'm wondering if that you saw as very similar in circumstances to the attack on Nemtsov, uh, or if you think that the circumstances have changed? I think they are similar in the most important way. Uh, neither attack, in the case of Boris Nemtsov, the actual assassination, in the case of Alexei Navalny, attempted murder, none of those uh, could have happened uh, without direct order from the top and without very close coordination of state structures. And with Boris Nemtsov, we have all the answers in an OSCE report that came out earlier this year in February of 2020. Uh, the uh, OSCE Parliamentary Assembly, that's the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe, published its long-awaited oversight report on the Nemtsov case. Uh, it's almost mm -hmm. 50 pages. It's the most comprehensive and detailed legal document, international legal document relating to the Nemtsov case. And it contains, first of all, some very important information, including uh, witness testimony uh, that pointed to exactly when, how, and to whom Vladimir Putin gave the order for the murder of Boris Nemtsov. This was in the winter of 2011, 2012, when he went to Chechnya to meet with Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the Kremlin-appointed head of the Chechen Republic. And in fact, the individuals who were convicted by a Russian court for having served as perpetrators in the assassination of Boris Nemtsov are all Kadyrov's people, uh, people from mm -hmm. his close circle. Of course, anybody even half a step higher is completely protected and shielded and continues to be by the Russian government. And that's the main conclusion of the OSCE report on the Nemtsov case, that the main reason for the continuing impunity for the organizers and masterminds of the assassination of Boris Nemtsov uh, is not the lack of professionalism by Russian law enforcement, but lack of political will by the Russian government. That's a very powerful conclusion, especially when it comes out of the world's largest regional security organization, which is the OSCE. So those are, I think, that's, I think, the most important similarity that both attacks were against very prominent and powerful political opponents of the current Kremlin regime, and both were orchestrated and organized by government structures, I have absolutely no doubt about this. And uh, it's very important now that just as we have uh, engaged in international oversight procedures over the uh, assassination of Boris Nemtsov, there was an oversight report at the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly, and now most recently at the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly. It's also very important, uh, while there obviously is not going to be a real investigation uh, in Russia, while Putin remains in power, either into the murder of Boris Nemtsov or into the attempted murder of Alexei Navalny. It's very important to engage those international oversight procedures too. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I was testifying before the Legal Affairs Committee of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of mm -hmm. Europe. And this is the, exactly the request I made. I, I said that it's very important to institute an official oversight procedure, uh, international oversight procedure, using the organizations of which Russia is a member, and that's primarily mm -hmm. the Council of Europe and the OSCE, in order to at least try to do something about that impunity 
that will continue mm -hmm. at home in Russia while the Putin regime remains in place. This is not going to replace the national investigation. No oversight procedure can. And it cannot replace real justice either. But at least it's a small step to try to prevent and reduce that impunity that continues to hold. And for this reason, it is very important. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you for bringing up some of the international issues. I also wanted to talk about uh, the local issues related to the, the attempt on Alexei Navalny's life. Uh, specifically, I think you've mentioned in, in, to Reuters and to perhaps to others that you, you think that something had to do with the timing of the protests in Khabarovsk and how Navalny was supporting uh, local um, people from his party to participate in local elections. So on the one hand, there's the international pressure, but there's also the very local pressure uh, that seems to be arising. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that in connection with your work um, on the local level in Russia. I know you kind of run democracy schools or something along those lines to help train young people to run in democratic elections, again, very much on like the local grassroots level. Russian public opinion is clearly changing. There's absolutely no doubt about this. And if we see at recent trends, uh, for example, in relation to support for the Putin regime or support for the constitutional amendments that he recently illegally and illegitimately enacted over the past summer, mm -hmm. you will see that uh, a, a significant part of Russian society, especially the young people, are growing increasingly impatient uh, with this system, with this regime. And it's, you know, it's not surprising after a single person has been in power for 20 years. We now have a whole generation in Russia that has no memory of any other political leader. I mean, that is not normal. People have been born, went to school, went to university, got married, got their jobs. And all this time we have one man at the top. I mean, this, mm -hmm. is, not, this is not what should be happening in Europe in the 21st century, but it is happening uh, with Putin. And so it's, it's, it's very sort of logical to expect that. And that is exactly what's happening. I mean, if you look at the recent, uh, I think it came out in July, there was a survey by the Levada Center, which is the last more or less independent polling agency in Russia, that showed the public confidence in Putin in an open poll where people themselves had to name uh, the person. Uh, in an open poll, public confidence in Vladimir Putin has collapsed to 23%. And that is astonishing in an authoritarian state uh, where the regime controls all the major sources of information like television networks. So a lot of people will be hesitant, if not outright afraid, to actually state their opinion about the regime. Even in those conditions, that's what we see. The question on one of those illegitimate constitutional amendments that, that Putin pushed through uh, was the one allowing him to ignore presidential term limits and remain in power after 2024. There was a poll on that as well by the Levada Center. And it showed that on this question, Russian society was split 48% by 47. Again, this is when many people would be hesitant to say so openly to a pollster. And I think a much more telling result from that opinion poll was uh, uh, the fact that 58%, a clear majority of Russians, think that the presidency should be age limited at 70 years of age. Vladimir Putin will turn 72 in 2024. So this is sort of a safe, euphemistic way to express your opposition to the dictator without saying out his name. Uh, and of course, we see it not just in polls. We've seen what's been happening in, in uh, Moscow, for example, last year when we had uh, uh, local elections, elections to the Moscow City Council, this time last year in September of 2019. And all the strongest opposition candidates were actually taken off the ballot ahead of time, as happens very often in, in, in Putin's Russia. And there were mass protests on the streets. Tens of thousands of people came out in a force of police force and brutality, uh, in the face of police force and brutality to, to, to protest against that. But even more tellingly, perhaps when the election day came, in nearly half of the districts for the Moscow City Council, pro-regime candidates still lost, even though the opponents had been removed from the ballot. They lost literally... Anybody. I mean, there were some technical spoilers who happened to be registered, 
And the pro-regime candidates, including the leader of the United Russia Party, the ruling party in Moscow, lost out to those people because by this stage, so many Russian citizens are looking for any kind of alternative to this, to this regime. Look at what's been happening for weeks now in the far eastern city of Khabarovsk, where tens of thousands of people have been demonstrating on the streets, at one point reaching 10% of the city's population on the streets. I mean, an equivalent rally in Moscow would, 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 would draw one and a half million people. I mean, we're talking about significant numbers here. And, um, and I also see it, uh, as, as you know, that I do a lot of travel around the regions of Russia, a lot of public events, meet a lot of people. And, um, one thing I noticed recently, uh, just before all these quarantine measures set in, so I guess this must have been late February, I was, uh, I was doing a public event in Siktivkar, which is in the Republic of Komi, uh, the northern part of European Russia, about two and a half hours flight northeast of Moscow. And it was a film screening, and then I had a discussion, conversation. There were a lot of young people, a lot of, uh, including students, you know, who, who came, mm -hmm. came to that event. And as I was talking to them, you know, after the film, I realized that it's no longer possible to distinguish between an audience in Moscow or St. Petersburg, you know, the traditional capital cities of Russia, and what you know, we Moscovites a little snobbishly used to call provincial audiences. Because before, mm -hmm. and in the older generation still today, you can tell the difference between the different audiences by speaking to people. That is no longer the case with people who are 30 years of age or younger. Mm -hmm. and, and, I just, and I thought to myself as I was sitting there and, and talking to these young people in Siktivkar, that I could have been in Moscow, St. Petersburg, or Novosibirsk, or any other big Russian city. I mean, Siktivkar is a fairly small provincial town in, you know, in the northern part of Russia. And, uh, but those young people, they watch the same YouTube videos, they read the same Twitter feeds, they use the same social media as their peers, not only in Moscow, St. Petersburg, but also in other European countries. And so this is the, this is the modern generation, this is the new generation, and mm -hmm. this is the generation that is rejecting Putinism in all its form. And uh, this generation is also the future of Russia, even purely mathematically. You know, Mr. Putin is, uh, is soon turning 70. Um, these people are 18, 20, 22 years of age. They're the future of Russia, and it's for the sake of that generation that we must continue our work. Of course, I also hope to still be around when, when these changes come. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to BNB Russia and Ukraine for daily insight about Russia and Ukraine's political and economic news. And follow us on Twitter at, at Bear Market Brief. Stay tuned for more episodes.